view if I said, we live in a time of turmoil. Everywhere we look, if we look at the world, we would have to acknowledge the world is in turmoil. If we look at our country, we would have to say our country is in turmoil. If we looked at churches, we would often have to say our churches are in turmoil. If we looked at our homes, if we looked at our marriages, if we looked at our relationships, we would often say there's a lot of turmoil in my life. I don't think any of you would have ever watched a daytime soap opera. But once in a while, I'll see it on the screen. And it's the same people that were there in 1972. (laughs) And there's a lot of drama in those programs. Well, that's kind of a parable of life. We have this issue in our lives, and it's the issue of too much turmoil. And because there's an increase in turmoil, there is a corresponding decrease in peace. Now, what I'm going to say to you today, you ought to kind of mentally challenge it because it will sound a little like preacher talk, but I want to suggest this thought to you, that you can walk out of this room with less turmoil than you had when you came in. That you can walk out of this room this morning with an increase of peace. In a little while, I will be giving you an eight-word sentence. I'll alert you to that in advance. I call it the sermon in a sentence. And I will tell you that the truth that is embedded in those eight words can decrease the turmoil and increase the peace. Now, to get to that text, and it's only going to be a single verse of Scripture, I'm going to read at seven or eight verses. And you have an assignment, and it's very simple. You be listening for the continuity. You be listening for the commonality. You be listening for this thing that is being said over and over and over again. Let me take you first in your mind. Don't turn to it. I'll get you to the text in a moment. But Genesis chapter 12. Do you know what's going on in Genesis chapter 12? A pagan moon worshiper named Abram is hearing from God. And God calls him. Calls him out of Ur of the Chaldees. And in Genesis chapter 12 verse 7, listen, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. All right, let me read you from Genesis 13, 15. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Genesis 13, 17. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Oh, by the way, how many of you spotted the commonality so far? Raise your hand up. Come on. I know better. Listen, just just tolerate the hillbilly. Would you do that with me for a minute? So get the hand free. How many of you know what the commonality is so far? Let's say your hand. Okay, thank you. That makes me, 
I just feel warm and fuzzy. All right, Genesis 17, 8. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Genesis 24, 7. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land. Exodus 6, 8, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Now, you know the commonality. Here's what is happening from Genesis 12 through Exodus and on into Leviticus and on throughout the, New Test the Old Testament. The refrain is repeated. I will give you this Thank you, thank you. Feeling better? I will give you this land. I'm going to read you one more. Don't turn to it. I'm almost to the text. Leviticus 25, 38. Here's what it says. It says, well, I'm going to look at it. You got your Bible? Because we're going to stay in Leviticus 25. So your copy of Scripture, whatever it is, get it open. Because I want you to see this. If you don't have it, it'll be on the screen there. But I want you to see what he says. 25 and verse number 38. Here it is. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Now, you've heard that. So prepare as if you were the people of God in that day to be shocked. Prepare to be startled with the text of the morning. And it is chapter 25, verse 23. Everybody look at that if you have a copy or look on the screen. Here it is. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity this is God speaking, for the land is mine. What? Has not God told us a hundred times? I'm giving you the land. And now God says, I want you to understand something. You don't get to sell this land. By the way, in the year of Jubilee, every 50 years, it was supposed to revert to its original owners within the people of God. So they would not lose from the inheritance that God had given them. But God said, listen, even though I have given it to you to possess, I want you to understand something. It is still mine. Now, here's the principle. I told you I was going to give you eight words. I'd like for you to remember this, however you choose to do that. This is God speaking. And it's the word that I believe God fairly clearly put in my heart so I'd bring it to your heart. And so here's what God spoke to my heart on this past Friday morning, as a matter of fact. So here's the eight words. You ready? All I have given you is still mine. I want to suggest to you this is going to change potentially, your life. It's going to decrease that turmoil. It's going to increase your peace. God looking at His people and saying, all I have given you is mine. All I have given you is still mine. And this, I believe, 
is the principle that moves us away from turmoil. Now, I'll tell you why I say that. I say that because the turmoil in our lives typically comes from perhaps these three things. It is our desire for power. And if I sense that you are taking away my power, there's going to be turmoil in my life because I want the power. The turmoil comes in our lives because we hold on to the position. To the position. That could be in a workplace. It could be in a church. It could even be within the family dynamics. But this is my position, and I'll fight you for my position. Power, position, and then I think this may be the big one for churches, preference. Someone has said that the seven last words of the church are, we've never done it that way before. (laughs) And I have come up with five words that will choke any church. It's this, I want it my way. Can I tell you something? You get one person, two person, or ten people within a church with that mindset, guess what you have? Turmoil. That's what you have. You have trouble right here in River City. That's a different thing. Okay, but anyway, understand it brings turmoil into our lives over power, position, and preference. But when you understand that all God has given you, all God has given you, is still His. If you hear God saying, all that I have given you is still mine, then you will overcome the adversary who wants to whisper this in your ear, it's your life, do what you want. The principle that even though God has been rich toward you and rich toward me and rich toward us in this church, God wants us to hear him say, all I have given you is still mine. Now that verse 23 that I read, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. I want to bring to you two implications from that verse and two implications from the truth that all God has given me is still mine. His, it's still His, and He wants me to know that. Two implications from that. Are you ready? Say yes. All right. Here's the first implication, and it's simple because I'm a simple person, and here's what it is. The ownership belongs to God. I'm going to tell you something. This is huge in our daily living. The ownership belongs to God. Can I tell you something that God has given everyone in this room? Even if you're not yet a follower of Christ. God has given you the gift of time. Time. But can I tell you something? The time He has given you, still His. God has given you the gift of breath. And in the age of COVID, that's something. (laughs) Breath. You remember the story of the wicked king named Belshazzar who threw a monstrous party 
and he brought in all of the singers and the wine and he took the sacred vessels that had been brought from Jerusalem, poured the wine in them. They drank from the sacred vessels. Oh, it was a party to end all parties. It did end his party because there was handwriting on the wall. You remember? Handwriting on the wall. And they called in Daniel and Daniel interpreted that handwriting. Mini, mini, tickle you farson, which means you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. And then he said these words. Listen, he said these words. He said, O Belshazzar, you have not glorified God who holds your life's breath in his hand and controls the very course of your life. Do you understand? God's given you breath. Breathe in, breathe out. God's given you breath. Can I tell you something? God wants to say something to you this morning about your breath. All I have given you is still mine. And God could take my breath away before I finish this line, this sentence, much less this sermon. It belongs to Him. The ownership belongs to God. The land, God said, is mine. The psalmist said it like this. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's. And the fullness thereof, the world, and those who dwell in it. That's me. That's you. God says, all I have given you is still mine. And if I remember that the ownership belongs to God, the turmoil decreases. The moment I begin to hold on to that as if it's mine, mine, then the turmoil increases. There is a correlation between the increase in turmoil, the decrease in peace and rest. The ownership, God says, is mine. The ownership belongs to God. Let me take a moment, tell you about the first time that my heart was broken as pastor of a church. I won't be too specific. I was probably about 32, 33 years old, early into my first pastorate. And the building in which we were meeting was in disrepair. And I understood how careful a young pastor would need to be. And so I appointed we appointed a long-range planning group, and I didn't even meet with them. I just let them begin to plan. They came back, and they said, we really need to do something. Hey, the, the building had no air conditioning, and on Sunday evenings I have preached in that building when it was between 90 and 100 degrees. And if sweating is a spiritual gift, I was right on, you know. It was tough. Okay, and, and so no air conditioning. Uh, you went into the basement and ducked under the pipes. You, all, you understand what I'm talking about? Some of you do. It was, and on top of the building was this, was this bell tower. But they could never stop the leaks. So my first responsibility on Sunday morning was to go up to the church and clean the stuff out of the back pews that fell from where they couldn't stop the leak under the bell tower. So for two years, they met and they came back with a plan and said, we need to do something about our building. 
Now we appointed a building committee. And they met for another close to 18 months. And I really didn't meet with them. I stayed away from it until the very, very last. And they came up with a plan, this beautiful plan. We had a Wednesday night. It was time to vote. And, and I, was, I was a little nervous. And so it wasn't a lot of people there. And we had the meeting. There was one time tension was there. I felt it. And it was when one of our deacons was speaking. And another deacon, who happened to be the older deacon and happened to be the chairman, he stood up and interrupted the first deacon. And the deacon raised his hand and he said to him, called his name, said, I have the floor. He sat back down. That was it. That was it. And so we came to the end of that. It passed 40-something to 9. I remember that. That's how many people voted on that. I went home on that Wednesday night, and I was happy. I mean, I know it wasn't perfect, but I thought, you know, I've survived this first crisis. Next day, phone call. It's from the wife of the senior, uh, the head of the deacons, the senior deacon in the church. She said, I, I need to come and talk to you. It, it actually wasn't went Thursday, it's Saturday. I said, oh, okay, had no clue. Went up to the little church. We lived in the parsonage. Went up to the little church, sat down before her. She sat down before me. Here's her first words. You're going to kill my husband. She said, when you say that you love people, I get cold chills because I know you don't love people. And my heart broke. I, I didn't know what happened. And I didn't know what happened for a long time until one day her twin brother, well up in years, stopped by. He said, Brother Hosey, I want to tell you why I didn't come to that business meeting. I said, oh, okay. He said, I didn't come because my sister called all the family, all the clan, and asked us all to come and vote against this. And he said, I couldn't vote against my sister but I couldn't vote against you. And suddenly I understood something. This was a lady, and I loved her then. She's with Jesus now, her husband as well. But here is a lady whose parents donated the land for the building. Her heart was wrapped up in that place and in the power that had been in that family and in the position that they had held in the church. And I was clueless. I was clueless. But here's what I found out. I found out when you let anybody or anything become the owner of the church other than Jesus Christ, you're in deep trouble. That's when, that's when the tension rises. That's when the turmoil increases. increases. The ownership belongs to God. And so for all of you, I want to say to this, you got time, you got talent, you got treasure, you got giftings, you got all of these things, and that is wonderful, and I thank God for it, but I'm saying to you, don't let them become your idols. Rather, step back and say, it all belongs to my God. It all belongs to Him. The ownership belongs to God. And if you do that, it suddenly takes the fire out of a lot of dynamics in your life. Because it's possible for a pastor to begin to think that the church belongs to him. And it scared me to death when people would say about Ridgecrest, Oh, that's Hosey Blue's church. No! <laughs> that's the church of Jesus Christ. 
it's possible for an officer in the church to have power and position and preference. And when that gets jostled, that person creates turmoil within the congregation. It might be the one who signs the checks. It might be someone who cleans the building. It might be a deacon. It might be a member of the church whose spiritual gift is grumbling. It's not a spiritual gift. Don't look it up. <laughs> Here's what I'm saying. How about this for freedom? It doesn't belong to me. It belongs to him. So Paul could say, do you not know that your body, your body, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit whom, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. That changes everything. I don't belong to me. I belong to Jesus. The ownership belongs to God. And when I understand that, I can have a decrease in turmoil and an increase in peace. That brings me to the only other thing that I have, but it's an implication of that. You see, in that verse number 23 that I read to you, he said, you are strangers and sojourners with me. Now, wait a minute. The land is our land. Why would you say that, God? The, the, the ownership... He says, you are strangers and sojourners with me. The contemporary English version. It isn't your land, and you only live there for a while. The ownership belongs to God. The stewardship belongs to me. I'm not the owner. I'm the tenant. I'm not the owner. I am the one to whom certain things have been entrusted but oh, the freedom that comes in being a steward. Not the owner, but just the steward. To take what God has given me and use it for his namesake and his glory. This is how God could say, it's your land and I'm giving it to you to possess it. But then he can say, it's still mine. You say, wait a minute, how does that work? I'll tell you how it works. It works because he has given it to you to possess as a steward. And that's literally true. Whatever you have today will not be yours a hundred years from now. It'll be somebody else's. Start now to say it's not mine now. That wife is not mine. That wife is his. Belongs to God. I've got the greatest wife in the world. Some of you perhaps have second. I don't know. But I've got the greatest. My sweet Debbie... I married her when she was 17 years of age, almost as soon as she graduated from Nixa High School. And she is beautiful, she is gifted, and she loves Jesus more than anyone I know. And I thank God for her. But listen to me, she's not mine. Not first. She belongs to her Lord. And she is better off if I know that. There was a time in my marriage, and it scared me and it scared her, but it scared her a lot more, when I loved her more than God. And I told her that. And it petrified her. But I got over it. And I thank God that it did. And I'm a better husband, a better man, when I recognize she is not mine. Not first, no. She belongs to him. 
her heavenly Father. So the stewardship belongs to me. He gives us good things, and he gives us those good things so that we will steward them for himself. I mentioned Abraham earlier, and in that 12th chapter, the people of Israel would have been a great people all the way through if they would have remembered Clause A and Clause B in chapter 12. Clause A, here it is. Abram, I'm going to bless you. And all God's people said, Amen. That's Clause A. Clause B, you be a blessing. Be thou a blessing, Abraham. Can I say this? Whatever God has given you comes to you on its way to someone else. God wants to take your life and make your life a blessing to this community and a blessing to your relationships, a blessing to your workplace, wherever it may be. You're a steward. God is the owner. The stewardship belongs to you. The stewardship belongs to me. The Apostle Paul has an awesome definition for stewardship. You ready? Colossians 1.25, given to me for you. That's it. Given to me for you. He's talking about his stewardship of the gospel, but it works in every area. Given to me for you. You know what too many of us think? Earned by me for me. And maybe you've gone beyond that, and it's earned by me for you, meaning I give you a little on the side if I decide to. You know, I'm charitable. And then some have progressed to where they realize it's given to me for me. That's how God's chosen people became God's frozen people. So here's what Paul said. Given to me for you. We own the stewardship of the gifts of God. Marion Wright Edelman said, Service is the rent we pay for being. It is the very purpose of life and not something you do in your spare time. Now, I like that a lot, but I like it even better if we take the word service out and put the word stewardship. Listen, stewardship is the rent we pay for being. It is the very purpose of life and not something you do in your spare time. Now, listen to me. Stewards will not have nearly the turmoil as owners if they understand they're not an owner, they're a steward, it changes the dynamic there. Many years ago at Ridgecrest, I brought in a man I knew from his writings, especially on worship. Worship is so much at the heart of who we are as the people of God. You are blessed with good worship leadership. I... Brought him in. His name, Dr. Bruce Leafblad. You got a name like mine? You like it. Bruce Leafblad. And he came in, and he taught for like three days, and I remember one sentence. But it changed my life. You ready? Here's what he taught us. We are to live on the altar, not make occasional trips there. That's the life of stewardship. And let me tell you something. 
If you'll take your power, whatever you perceive it to be, your position, your preferences, take them to the altar. And don't just make a visit there. No, live on the altar. Live the surrendered life. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship, your spiritual worship. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is a good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Come to the altar. So if you'll take your turmoil, identify that there's probably some pride there. Bring your turmoil to the altar. Leave it there. And when you do go on with your life, take the peace that passes understanding. The peace and the rest. Is your all on the altar of sacrifice laid? Your heart does the spirit control. You can only be blessed and have peace and sweet rest when your all on the altar is laid. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes for a moment. Just close your eyes. Humor me. Because I want to do a little mental exercise with you. And that is, I want you to imagine an altar. It may be a large one, or it may be small. It may be the steps at the front of this worship center. It may be a chair that you love. It may be a place in your sunroom. It may be a walk on a trail. Build an altar. Now, gather up that turmoil. Gather gather up that tension that's tearing you and your heart apart. Come to the altar. Lay it at the feet of Jesus. Hear him say, come to me. I'll give you rest. In just a moment, I'm going to be asking you to stand. Music will play. But I want to give you an opportunity if you want to make an altar here at the front. You can do that. Obviously, it's your decision. But sometimes that's helpful. Bring your turmoil. Bring your stress and your tension and your distress. Lay them on the altar. And leave here today with a decrease in turmoil and an increase in peace. Father, let it be so in the name of Jesus, I pray. Stand with me, please.